Hello, and welcome back to Bad Apple. I'm Riley. And I'm Helen. And today we're bringing you an episode from the land of the long white cloud. I've already used that. What other names does New Zealand have? It doesn't have any others. <laughs> I can't think of any. Um, Aotearoa. Yeah. Aotearoa. Aotearoa. Yeah. And the land of the long white cloud and just over the ditch. Oh, okay, yeah. Over the ditch. How could you forget? Across the ditch. Yeah. We're coming to you from across the ditch. Mm-hmm. In 1954, in the picturesque Port Hills area of Christchurch, two teenage girls committed a brutal murder and tried to conceal it as an accident. Authorities began to ask just what led two young women to carry out such a horrific act. Well, the story begins a few years prior, when Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume met at Christchurch Girls High School. Juliet had recently immigrated to Christchurch from England, as her father had taken a high-paying position as the rector at the University of Canterbury, while Pauline was a Christchurch local from a working-class background. The two girls didn't have much in common in terms of background, and according to former classmates, they also had very different personalities. Pauline is described as being moody and scowling, a tomboy with short black curly hair. Apparently, she insisted on being called Paul. Juliet had a posh English accent and was described as, quote, a fish out of water, but not in a humble way. What bonded the two girls was a shared experience of childhood illness. Pauline had suffered from osteomyelitis, a bone infection, and Juliet had tuberculosis, a respiratory infection. This initial bond quickly grew, and the girls became extremely close. Both Pauline and Juliet were extremely creative, and together they developed a fantasy universe around which they wrote books, plays, and short stories. They inserted themselves into this world under aliases, Pauline as Gina and Juliet as Deborah, where they lived alternate lives with famous actors of the time, such as James Mason and Orson Welles. These stories often involved violent crime and deaths, as well as explicit bedroom scenes. The girls would dress up and sneak out at night, acting out scenes which they had written about. According to Juliet's mother Hilda, Juliet had become so consumed by the character of Deborah that it was difficult to engage with her as Juliet. They also invented a personal religion where they worshipped their own saints, who were essentially famous singers and actors who they had chosen to represent their ideals. They held nighttime ceremonies in a makeshift temple to honour their saints, their favourite of which was singer Mario Lanza. They also believed in a parallel dimension which they referred to as the fourth world, which was essentially heaven. The girls felt as though they had occasionally entered the fourth world during brief moments of spiritual enlightenment. According to Pauline, achieving this enlightenment would not have been possible without their friendship. Soon, the girls became virtually inseparable, and their parents became concerned that they were spending too much time together. According to people close to the girls, they became conceited and arrogant, believing that they were geniuses who had an extra part in their brain, which allowed them to access the fourth world. Pauline's mother, in particular, became concerned that their relationship was sexual. At the time, not only was homosexuality considered extremely taboo, but it was also considered a serious mental illness. Despite this, both families allowed the girls to continue to see each other, and Pauline was still allowed to stay overnight at Juliet's house and was invited to accompany the Hume family on vacations. During these vacations, the two girls spent much of their time together away from the rest of their family. They wandered around together, wrote novels set in their fantasy world, took baths together, and spent a lot of time in each other's beds. This sounds a lot like us during the lockdown, Helen. <laughs> yeah. Just laying in bed. Yeah. 
I made a Sims game with me and Keanu Reeves. That's true. Damn. That's our fourth world. Sims. The Sims. <laughs> so. God, we've just outed ourselves. Mm. You're so right. We don't need to write novels anymore. We can live it out in The Sims. In simulation. Yeah. We never took a bath together. No. But that being said, I guess that says that this teenage girl behavior, mm-hmm. it's not too out there so yeah, far. Yeah, yeah. Not that we're teenagers anymore. No, but we were 22 when we were doing that. We did regress a little during the lockdown. <laughs> I'll give us four years. Yeah. However, it was soon revealed that perhaps Juliet's parents had not been paying as much attention to their daughter's relationships as they battled struggles of their own. In 1953, problems in the Hume household came to a head, and Pauline was not invited on summer vacation as she had been in the past. The following year, Juliet's parents formally separated after it was revealed that her mother had been having an affair. Soon after, her father was forced to resign from his role at the university after issues with other board members. As a result of this breakdown, Juliet's parents planned on returning home to England, but decided that a better option for Juliet's health would be for her to live in South Africa with relatives. This is due to her tuberculosis? Yeah, I think during this time, the air pollution in, in the England. UK. Mm, I see. Not very good. Pauline and Juliet were both distraught at the thought of becoming separated and began to formulate a plan by which Pauline would go with Juliet to South Africa. From there, they planned to finish their education and then move on to Hollywood or New York, where they would get their novels published and their screenplays adapted to film. While it was slim, Juliet thought there was a chance her parents would agree to the plan. Pauline, on the other hand, was certain that her mother would never allow it. And so, another plan was born. On the 22nd of June, 1954, Pauline and Juliet had joined Pauline's mother, Honora, at the tea rooms at Victoria Park in Christchurch. After eating, they set off together for a walk through the park at around 3.30pm. They only got 130 metres down the path before they set the plan into action. Juliet deliberately dropped an ornamental stone that she had been carrying at Honora's feet so that she would bend down to pick it up. While she was leaning over, Pauline struck her mother in the head with a makeshift weapon, which was half a brick in an old stocking. The girls had planned that one strike would be enough to kill Honora, but this was not the case. Pauline struck her mother more than 20 times before she was certain that she was dead. They then disposed of the weapon in the surrounding woods and went back to the tea rooms, covered in blood, and told the owners that Honora had fallen and hit her head. Agnes and Kenneth Ritchie, owners of the tea rooms, immediately called the police. Kenneth then headed down the path, presumably in an attempt to help Honora, but instead he found her lifeless body. When the police arrived, they assessed Honora's injuries. She had major lacerations on her head, neck and face, and some defensive wounds on her hands. When police found the murder weapon nearby, Pauline and Juliet's story about an accidental fall quickly fell apart. The girls were arrested and charged with Honora's murder later that day. The trial began on the 23rd of August. Both Pauline and Juliet faced the charge of murder, and both pled not guilty by reason of insanity. During the trial, rumours swirled around the girls' sexuality, as well as their mental health, as the court was provided with evidence of their insanity. Two psychiatrists, Reginald Medlicott and Francis Bennett, gave evidence that the girls had both suffered from paranoia, delusions of grandeur, and delusions of ecstasy. And because of their close relationship, they had accelerated the process of the illness in one another. The psychiatrists cited the girls' contempt for the Bible and the invention of their own religion as further evidence of their insanity. However, the prosecution disputed these claims, 
saying that it was not that the girls were incurably insane, but that they were incurably bad. It's very dramatic, isn't it? There's that was a... their words. Yeah. Yeah. There's such a thing to say about two teenage girls, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. They're bad. They're just bad girls. Mm. Bad, bad girls. Mm. The prosecution described their act as, quote, cold, callously committed and premeditated murder, committed by two highly intelligent and perfectly sane girls. They also played on the rumours of homosexuality to further elaborate on the deviancy of the two, describing them as, quote, precocious and dirty-minded, but not insane. This throws me back a bit to Folia Deux. Folia Deux. That was actually brought up in the, in this. Oh. Yeah. And there was two of them. Yeah, yeah. That's what Deux means. Yeah. Two. What does Folia Deux? I don't know. Folly Delusions. Delusions. Dreams. Yeah, shared delusions. Pauline kept a diary in which she had made regular entries, which was used as evidence that the murder was in fact premeditated. In late April, after it was revealed that Juliet would be moving away, an entry in Pauline's diary read, Anger against mother boiled up inside. Suddenly, a means of ridding myself of this obstacle occurred to me. If she were to die... Solidifying the intentional nature of the murder, which Pauline had spelt in her diary multiple times... Moider. M-O-I-D-E-R. Why? I don't know. I don't know if it was meant to be like, you know how people like don't want to say, like, you know how people are like, code, code, they're like, to make it a bit less real. I'm not sure, but she kept writing moider. 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 Okay. Doesn't look good for her, does it? No. In this, Pauline wrote, the day of the happy event, I am writing a bit of this on the morning of the death. I felt very excited and the night before Christmassy last night. I didn't have pleasant dreams, though. She really wasn't metaphorical about this at all. No. At this point. Yeah, no. She knew what was going to happen and it kind of puts the nail in the coffin, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's not a great... That's not great. Not great. There were also entries in her journal which told of her fondness for Juliet, including statements like, It was wonderful returning with Juliet. It was as if she had never been away. I believe I could fall in love with Juliet. Her diary also contained more explicit suggestions of the sexual nature of their relationship. In two entries from June 1954, Pauline recounted what appears to be sexual interaction between the pair. On June 11, she wrote, We acted out how each saint would make love in bed, only doing the first seven, as it was 7.30am by then. We felt very satisfied. And on June 13th, she wrote, We spent a hectic night going through the saints, It was wonderful, heavenly, beautiful, and ours. We felt satisfied indeed. We have now learned the peace of the thing called bliss and the joy of the thing called sin. When asked about their sexual activity during the trial, Pauline had said, How could we? We were both women. This is certainly something. Oh, yeah. This is some kind of connection. Seven saints is a lot of saints to roleplay as. That's true. So, and it was seven thirty. When did they begin? It was a long night. That's a long night. Is it like ex- is it like commonly accepted that they were there no. was a? Oh, why not? They've both said there wasn't. Um, but I look. I don't know. Hmm. You are correct. There is <laughs> certainly some quite damning evidence that there was something going on. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe maybe everyone in this case, the girls, the jury, are. Uh, thinking about a... Like physicality? Thinking through Is that a, what you're thinking about? Yeah, thinking through a very narrow lens of what a an affair between two women should mm. look like. Mm-hmm. Including the girls. That's true. 
But I guess that's also up to them to define, is it? For the girls to define? Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. On the 28th of August, 1954, just two months after Honora's murder, the jury found Pauline and Juliet guilty. It was later found that the experimental drugs Pauline had been receiving as treatment for her tuberculosis had mood-altering effects. Juliet also revealed after the trial that she was concerned that if she didn't agree to the plan to murder Honora, that Pauline would take her own life and that it would be her fault. Had these facts been known at the time, the outcome for both girls may have been very different. While the death penalty was available in New Zealand at the time, Pauline and Juliet's age of 16 and 15 respectively meant that they were too young for that to be considered. Instead, they were sentenced to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. Mmm, interesting use of the word pleasure. That is a very interesting term. It is, isn't it? Yeah. But it's I guess... as you please. And at, when um, homosexuality was so taboo, mm. we couldn't possibly think of pleasure, Her Majesty's pleasure, as, as sexual. No. No, no. No, no, no. Just, you know, the very formal meaning of the word. Mm. Pleasure. Pleasure. Like when you I... have to say it a bit fast because if you say it too slow, it's like it gets it gets a bit more takes on those overtones. But if you just pleasure, pleasure, mm-hmm. pleasure, we've put a stigma to the word, haven't we? I guess so. Yeah, it's it's taken on another meaning, mm. as many words do over time. In practice, this meant that they were detained for an indeterminate period of time, and their release was at the discretion of the New Zealand Minister of Justice, not Her Majesty. Well, the Minister of Justice is an agent of Her Majesty in our very confusing Commonwealth system. And at this point, I think New Zealand had still stronger ties to the to England. Oh. There were still much more colony vibes. Mm. Yeah. In the end, both girls were released separately after serving just five years in prison. So they were younger than us when they got out. Uh, yeah. Damn. 20 and 21. Due to the nature of their offending and evidence proffered about the effect of their relationship on their mental health, it was determined that to give the girls the best chance at rehabilitation that they must not have contact with one another during their term of imprisonment. However, this was a difficult task as there was only one dedicated correctional facility for young women in New Zealand at the time, and it was considered that adult facilities would have been too severe for the girls. Pauline was sent to Paparua Prison near Christchurch where she served her five-year sentence. Juliet was sent to a facility at Mount Eden in Auckland before being transferred to Arohata, near Wellington. Juliet has spoken about her time in prison, saying that she spent the first three months in solitary confinement. She spoke of daily breakdowns, where she got on her knees, cried, and repented. She knew she was guilty and felt that it was the right place for her to be. As the only child in the adult prison, some of the older women became quite fond of Juliet, and these relationships helped in her recovery. She says that the worst parts of prison were that there were no fruit and no library, but having her own room and spending the nights alone was a great blessing. This is quite in line with her character description earlier. Mm. There there was no fruit Mm -hmm. and no library in prison. Her two interests. She's a fish out of water again. But I find it interesting they sent her to the adult prison when Pauline did the dirty work. Yeah. I think the reason for that was because, and this might be wrong, feel free to fact check me, anyone that actually knows, but I think it's because Pauline's family was still in Christchurch, but both of Juliet's family had left the country by then. Right. So it didn't really matter 
like where she was. But if Pauline could have her family support nearby, it might be helpful for her. Like she had a sister, her dad, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Hot take, but when she just Mm. murdered her mother. You would think that the rest of her family might not want anything to do with her. But her sister has said that she remembers being faced with this kind of choice where she could either hate her sister for the rest of her life and essentially lose two family members Mm. or be able to forgive her sister and keep in contact with her, which is what she chose in the end. Damn. I know. That is some, that is next level emotional capability. Yeah. Even. Mm. Yeah. After their release from prison, both Pauline and Juliet sought to begin a new life, separately this time. It was initially thought that this separation was a condition of their release, but it has since been revealed that it wasn't, and the girls had maintained the separation voluntarily. Pauline had to spend six months on parole in New Zealand, but as a result of public outrage over the murder, the relatively short nature of her sentence, and her age, Pauline was given a new identity. At 21, she became Hilary Nathan. During her parole term, she was kept under close surveillance in New Zealand. She completed a Bachelor of Arts at the University of Auckland in 1964 and worked at the New Zealand Library School in Wellington as a librarian for a year. Her colleagues at the school knew there was something that the woman, who they knew as Hillary, was keeping from them. She didn't have many friends or spend much time socialising with other staff, and she made sure that she was never photographed, which included being absent for the class photo. After her time at the library school, she left the country. Pauline went to England, where she lived an extremely private life. For 30 years, her exact location and occupation were unknown, until she moved to a small village called Who in Kent. Literally Whoville. Who, H-O-O. They're all Who's in there. But yeah, Whoville. Yeah. (laughs) Where she began a children's writing school. As an adult, Pauline became a devout Roman Catholic. She doesn't have a radio or a TV, effectively living a solitary existence beyond the reach of the outside world. Juliet's life after prison has almost been the polar opposite of Pauline's, as she lived a very high-profile life under her new name, Anne Perry. Immediately after her release, she went to Italy where her father was now working and lived with him for a period of time before making her way to the United States, where, like Pauline, she became involved in religion and joined the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints which I think is a Mormon church. Mm. As a young woman, she travelled a great deal and worked in a variety of jobs, from air hostess to insurance underwriter. Also during this time, she had many boyfriends, but didn't let anyone get too close, through fear of having to disclose about her past. Following this, she relocated to live with her mother in a small village in Scotland, Port Mahomic. Her mother had since remarried, and Juliet took the surname of her new stepfather, Perry, and changed her first name to Anne. This name change signified the beginning of a new era for Juliet, and she set on a course to follow her original dream of becoming a writer. In 1979, she published her first novel, The Cater Street Hangman. This was the beginning of a series of successful historical murder mysteries and detective fiction. Her most prominent works are novels featuring returning characters, Thomas Pitt and William Monk. She also has a collection of standalone novels, short stories, and a series of annual Christmas books. She has sold more than 20 million copies of her books. In 2017, Juliet, now Anne, finally fulfilled a lifelong dream of moving to Hollywood, where she is promoting film adaptations of her novels. While Anne Perry's novels became widely known, her past life as Juliet Hume was not revealed until 1994, around the time of the release of Peter Jackson's film 
Heavenly Creatures, which was a fictionalised version of the girls' relationship and the murder they committed together. In the film, their relationship was portrayed as sexual. More than 50 years after the murder, in 2006, Juliet made her first statement about her relationship with Pauline, saying that while their relationship was obsessive, they were not involved sexually, despite what the film might suggest. Pauline has never spoken publicly about the incident, but a statement released by her sister in 1996 says that, quote, Pauline committed the most terrible crime and has spent 40 years repaying it by keeping away from people and doing her own little thing. After it happened, she was very sorry about it. It took her about five years to realise what she had done. Her sister also says that she wouldn't even know that Anne Perry exists because she has no connection with the outside world, outside of her village. True. Yeah. Doesn't get the newspaper, doesn't have a TV, doesn't have radio. She would have no idea. Hmm. She's just kept kind of imprisoning herself in a sense. That's true. That is true. I hope she's like happy, kind of. hope she has like recovered mentally. Because she was obviously not in a very good place mentally. When she committed the crime. Yeah. They're both still alive. They're both in their early 80s and still just doing their thing. I don't think we'll ever hear from Pauline. Mm. I don't think she'll ever speak out. And I don't think she wants to be found, even though she has been found. So I know like a couple of years ago I read this thing that when I say a couple of years ago, probably like 20 by this point because I keep thinking we're in 2010 – that these this group of journalists had like been trying to find her mm. and they were like kind of camping out outside this bookshop in New Zealand because they thought that she was like working there or staying there or something but she was never there. Yikes. She was literally never there and she was in this little village the whole time. So leave her alone. She wants to be left alone to do her thing. Not Anne though, she's living. Anne has been I mean Juliet mm. has been so Juliet this whole time. Mm, that is she, that is true. She never fails to yeah be Juliet. Yeah. That's true. And at least now she's fulfilled her lifelong dream of going to Hollywood. Mm. And we might get to see a film. That brings us to the end of this case. This Mm. is the story so far. And I don't know how we're meant to feel about these girls. Yeah, I don't know how I feel either. Or how I'm meant to feel. Part of me wants to think that potentially some of the evidence about their mental well-being wasn't given as much credence as it should have been Mm -hmm. like in that time we weren't really that like i for lack of a better word like we didn't really believe in like mental illness yeah as much as we do now we don't know as much about it but yeah yeah. plus experimental drugs for tuberculosis sounds hectic that does sound kind of hectic apparently it was a big needle in your bum damn yeah and so they were found guilty and sentenced to five years. Mm, it could have been longer. Right. So it was just like, you, you're going to jail and we'll tell you when you can get out. Oh, sorry. Her Majesty's pleasure. And Her Majesty's pleasure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they do that anymore, by the way. I don't think that happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a bit, um, man, that would that send my anxiety. Yeah. Uncertainty. Mm, so true. That is the most uncertain situation you could yeah. be in. It's actually like, I'm pretty sure... In Australia, it's you cannot imprison someone indefinitely in any of the states. Mm. There has to be a period when it ends. But that's not the case everywhere. Right. And so the age of criminal responsibility in mm. Australia and New Zealand is both 10. Is it 10 in New Zealand too? Yeah, I looked. Quite young. Do you think that's quite young? There's a campaign going at the moment to raise ours to 14. 
And but isn't it rebuttal presumption until fourteen? Yeah, so you're presumed to have the innocent intent of a child,、mm. unless like successfully rebutted, right? Before fourteen,、yeah. so there's、right? an extra step, and then you have to prove that they were guilty. Yeah, right. Yeah, but then I guess from fourteen onwards,、yeah. there isn't that assumption. That's just you are essentially an adult in the eyes of the law. But there is still, I think, from ten to. And it varies between seventeen and eighteen across the states.、Mm. Not ten, sorry, fourteen to seventeen-ish.、Mm. That's when you are tried as an adult, effectively. But there is like other rules on top of that for being a child. Like it's normally like closed court. Things don't get published. Like your name is redacted, stuff、mm. like that.、Mm. But in terms of responsibility, adult. And seemingly, these girls they were fine、mm. from when they got out onwards. Never really reoffended. Or even contacted each other. Yeah, which is very interesting. I I think there actually is some speculation that they some people don't believe they've never like、oh. contacted it with each other. You know,、mm. but I don't know. Damn, they are both now kind of in that area. Yeah, they're both in England now. Yeah, well, I mean Juliet's just moved to Hollywood, but oh yeah, for a bit were for quite a long time in the same area. Yeah.、Mm. Anyway, that pretty much wraps it up for this week. Yeah, a couple of. Housekeeping matters. Firstly, we would like to give a shout out to our old housemate Joe, his new housemate James. <laughs> Joe James. Yeah, we would like to give a shout out to James for always being very excited for our episodes and really just being a a true fan of the podcast、I've, for almost no reason. I've never met a man so excited. Yeah, about our episodes. I know. So thank you very much. Thanks, James, and thank you to everyone who has left us、um, such kind reviews recently.、Mm-hmm. Um, while we've been on hiatus, we've had a few lovely reviews, and more people were excited about our return than I thought they would be. Me too. <laughs> I didn't realize how many people had missed us. Me neither. Feels nice. It, yeah. So James is just one of many. Yeah. Of you guys. <laughs> yeah. Someone even left a suggestion for a future case in their review. We love that. We love that. We want to know what you guys want to hear. I've also been fact checked on something I said in a previous episode. I can't believe this is the first time it's happened. <laughs> I think it's just the first time someone has told me <laughs> that I've said something wrong. <laughs> And I need to bring accurate information to the people. So I'm here to clarify. I said at some point during the Jim Donnelly episode that when the airbags go off during a car accident, it means that the car is automatically written off. But that is not true. And fake news. If I remember correctly from that episode, you did say that that didn't sound right, Helen. <laughs> doesn't it? It doesn't. It doesn't.、There、and you were right. Spreading fake airbag news. You were right, and I should have listened to you. So, <laughs> thanks to my friend Manuel for correcting me. No, it's fine.、Um, you run the you run a higher risk of being wrong because I ask you questions all the time. That's true, and I just try and answer them <laughs> as best as I can. <laughs> Sometimes I'm wrong. I'll take your word for gospel. Anyway, I would have written、Great. my car off, but now I won't because I know it's、Great. not the worst thing ever. Yeah, you can just、airbags. as soon as they go off, just shove them back in. Don't yes, do that. that That's sounds... also fake. <laughs> I'll do exactly that. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll be back in two weeks' time in a fortnight. Yeah, with our next episode. Back to Australia. We'll be coming back to Australia. Great. Okay. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.